Hello and welcome back to another episode of Cycling Talk Podcast with me, Georgia Mahoney. I'm really excited to bring you this next episode with Ribble World Tight Rider, founder of Watch Shop, author and aerodynamicist, Dan Bigham. Dan's story is interesting on so many levels and I really hope that you all enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed recording. If you did enjoy this episode, then please give me your feedback. You can get in touch via my Instagram account at cycling.talk.podcast. Thank you for joining me today, Dan. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's always fun to chat. Um, looking forward to it. What's your first memory of being on a bike? I think it goes back to when I was probably five, six, seven, something like that. Um, just, I guess, riding out with a family that mum and dad were always pretty keen on just, I guess, adventuring and sport. And I played every sport under the sun as a kid. Football, rugby, tennis, squash, swimming, cycling. Just, um, yeah, I guess for us, it was just a way of uh, getting out and exploring. And we used to just go riding around the lanes um, on mountain bikes and, yeah, just for the fun of it, really. Um yeah, it's that was some time ago though, 20 something, 20 something years ago. So it's uh, it's changed a little bit from pootling around lanes to what we're up to now. Do you have any siblings that you rode with? So I've got uh, an older brother and a younger brother uh, who both are actually pretty keen into cycling now. We all came to it at a similar kind of point later on, I guess, after university, that kind of thing. Uh, so my, my older brother actually works for me. Oh, it works for me is probably the wrong term. We work together at Watchshop. Um, and my younger brother, he lives out in, in Spain and he rides as well. So we used to ride together as, yeah, as kids, um, as you do, just around the village and whatever else on your bikes. Um, whereas now it's it's much more about, I guess, fitness and competition and that sort of thing. So I do ride with my older brother quite a bit because he lives literally down the road from me. Whereas my younger brother, not so much because he's a few thousand miles away. Yeah. Do you remember the first bike that you were really excited about? Hmm. Bike I was excited about. There's been so many. I guess every bike you're always excited because it's new, right? That mm. it doesn't matter if it's a road bike, a time trial bike, a track bike, a mountain bike. It's it's new and it's cool, and you always get excited for it. I guess the most excited I've been would probably be my first TT bike, my first time trial bike, which was back at university. I'd been saving up for quite a while. Um, which I mean, it's always hard to do at uni anyway when all the other expenses and you're trying to you're living on the breadline as it were so uh yeah when I finally got that together uh, which was 2012 I think it was uh built it up bit by bit stuff off eBay and Facebook and all the other stuff just hunting around for good deals uh so that was quite a nice build quite fun to decide all the equipment throughout and yeah super excited to go and ride it so that was that was probably my favorite which was a specialized transition bright red can you tell me about your first race so there's been a few first races i guess depending on what what my first would depend on the discipline uh so my first bike race would have been this is an interesting one so i think it would have been the british university 25 mile time trial championships i think which uh, I did on my road bike with clip-ons and I just passed halfway I cramped so I got off the bike had a stretch 
um, and got back, which I know thinking back is is a bit crazy to think that in the middle of a time trial you'd, you'd hop off and have a stretch and sort all that out but that's how how it happened and I think uh, I maybe it was an hour and eight minutes hour and nine minutes um, which is what 21 mile an hour or something I can't remember but yeah, yeah so that, that was maybe our first time trial my first triathlon because actually I did a bit of triathlon first was just a few months later which is the British University super sprint try so really short it was like a 300 meter swim a 10k bike and a 3k run um that was really good fun actually I, I won that one which was more a reflection of the fact that all the, the big dogs and the hitters had entered the, the olympic distance that day but uh, i met a really good friend actually who finished second just behind me a guy called ollie bridgewood who works at gcn now you might know uh so he was a good friend back then 10 nearly 10 years ago now nine ten years ago uh so that was my first triathlon and then my first road race was at castle coombe which is a road racing circuit near Bath. Mm. I absolutely love Castle Coombe. Just, I guess, so flat out and just, just straight up fun. Uh, and I won as well, which is quite cool. Yeah. It was uh, as a fourth cat. I, I think it's I time trialed so much. I'd triathlon. I was strong. I just didn't really have the tactical side of it dialed yet. And uh, I just rode off. Um, I think it was the start of the second lap and just about stayed away. I had a few hundred meters by the end of it. And, uh, yeah, that was my, my first first road race. Oh, wow. So you were quite late into competing then? Yeah, very late. I didn't start competition until, I'm trying to think now, how old I would have been. 20 was maybe my first race. Uh, so I'd gone to university uh, to study motorsport engineering and, and wanted to, to be in that side of things. I, I love the engineering and Formula One and motorsport. It was what my dream was really and uh I actually got into cycling because of commuting as run as, as odd as that is um which I, I discovered was the same as, as my good friend John Archibald he was the same he picked up a bike for commuting because it was easier to get in than driving in my case it was the bus the bus took like 45 minutes every morning to do six miles to my campus I was like six miles ride that in 20 minutes uh so I went to the local bike shop bought a bike um started commuting and then that's where it really grew from really tell me more about your triathlons that you did so after the the british uni champs i then sort of dabbled really i did a bit of duathlon a bit of the elite level kind of draft legal stuff which was more competitive but i wasn't a good swimmer i as much i swam as a kid um i can't say i ever particularly enjoyed it but it was a worthwhile thing to do um just obviously not be drowning whenever you go to the beach or whatever but um I was never front pack I was I was coming out more towards the back end and then uh, having to ride myself back into contention uh my running was okay just not quite the level where I'd be competitive on even like national level so the, the sort of nationals and and the national series I could get to maybe the front pack and then they'd run away from me and I yeah it was it was fun. I, I raced age group triathlon. I raced the Europeans and then the world age group champs. Um, I was I think fourth and fifth uh, at the Euros and the Worlds, which is yeah I think respectable. I enjoyed it. It was good fun, but I was always more of a cyclist than I probably was a triathlete. And it took me to pick up a running injury to really realise that actually I should probably ride my bike. So did you join a local club? Sort of. I joined the university club. Uh, Oxford Brooks uh, Cycling Club uh, so it'd only been going for about a year or so when I got there it was kind of a, a spin-off from the athletics club which had like a bit of triathlon in there as well 
uh, one of my course for, course mates, a guy called Jack Lawler Anderson, who was an engineer as well. He'd he'd founded the cycling club, so um, we're all good friends and a lot of yeah, a lot of just people who are similar to me really there. So by extension, we had um, I guess an affiliation with the local club, which was uh, or still is Cowley Road Condors. They're a I guess really progressive, forward thinking, social cycling club. They're they're quite new. They're not like most domestic clubs that have existed for tens if not hundreds of years in some cases uh, they're uh, I think maybe 10 years old all in now and they're, they're full of sort of 20 30 maybe 40 year olds who just love going out love the, the sort of social aspect love a bit of racing coffees cakes and then quite often social nights out a bit like when you're at university where you, you go to the pub or whatever they, they do the same and um, I guess it was a good club to tie up tie up in but I, I never really got involved with the traditional cycling club scenes of club runs and um, the history of a club, I guess, as such. When you first got into riding, what sort of training were you doing and who was that with? So that was with the, with the university club and what training were we doing? I, I really should go back and have a look because it'd be quite interesting to see how I trained then versus now, because I'm sure at the time I probably thought I was super scientific and really organized and I think looking or reflecting back at least from my memory I probably wasn't as, as much or at least as disciplined as I am now uh, so it was course friends and, and club friends and it was a mix really to be honest it would be a lot more around the weekends but then some days as well lectures weren't quite as intensive so you could get out for an afternoon or morning and, and get a bit more volume but I think a lot of it was <laughs> sounds really stupid but riding hard with your friends until someone blows up so you'd go out, there'd be two, three, four of you, and you'd be like, right, we're going to do two or three hours and just go full gas and, and see what happens. And I know that that's not structured. It's not, not what any sci- scientist would tell you or physiologist would say, go and train like this. But it was good fun. Uh, I did pick up a coach in my later years at university, my last year, and he brought a lot more structure to my training. So it was less about um, smashing each other <laughs> on, on a chain gang and a bit more of, of intervals and uh, strategic uh, approach to training. Uh, and he had a good background as well, just in, in sports science. He was um, doing some really cool research at, at Oxford Uni. So he um, mm. was quite keen to pass that knowledge on. And I learned a huge amount through him. So that, that was a guy called called Tom Kirk. Um, beyond that, though, it was, yeah, just enjoying it. Whatever I found fun, I was quite happy to go and do, whether that was on a velodrome, whether it was doing hill climbs or time trials. I just enjoyed riding my bike. So I'd go and ride my bike. So my nearest velodrome is about three hours away. Was there a velodrome near your university? Yeah, so lucky on that one. Not an indoor one, uh, but an outdoor one at Reading. So just not well, just outside of London, I guess. Uh, the track's called Palmer Park. It's something like four hundred and say like four hundred and thirty-four meters. A really random distance. I don't know why, but it, <laughs> that's the distance it is. Uh, and we could ride down there. It was just over an hour, or you could hop on the train. It was like twenty minutes on the train. Uh, and we could go and ride on on the track on your road bikes as well, which is really cool. So uh, we did our varsity competition against Reading University, and we had both cycle clubs against each other on the outdoor velodrome. We did aero testing there. I did um, an outdoor hour record there back in 2014 for a bit of fun. <laughs> um, so that was yeah our closest one. But we also went over to Newport quite a bit, which was maybe two hours from us, and that was back in 2004. And that was my first taste of indoor velodrome riding. I, I'd seen it, I'd followed it. I, I loved watching it on, on TV. I'd been to 
Bradley Wien's hour record. I'd followed all the hour records on on TV, and then yeah, getting dipping my toe in the water, as it were, of, of the track. And obviously, since then, it's it's grown to be something quite big in my life. Can you talk me through how you first got into track, and how you progressed through to elite level? So that was. Uh, bit of an extension of what, what I was just saying there. So going over to Newport, it was uh, a friend, mutual f- friend of my coach, a guy called Adam Wade, who took me over to, to Newport for one of, these, one of the sessions. Uh, and just a really funny guy who I got on well with. Uh, also had a lot of differing opinions to him, but I find that quite fun when you, you meet somebody who you get on well, but also disagree on lots of stuff because there's always something to argue over. Uh, so he's one of those kind of characters he was also really supportive and he lent me his track bike and I went to the British University Track Championships. I raced pretty much everything I could enter, uh, what they'd let me, the IP, the Kilo, all the bunch races. I'd barely raced any of them. Uh, I went up to Manchester just maybe a week or so before. I remember I, at the time I didn't have a car, so I got the train up to Manchester and then thought, oh, I'll, I'll hop on the tram and take my bike over on the tram to the velodrome. And then they wouldn't let me on the tram with a bike, which I thought was silly. It's like, I'm clearly going to the velodrome. But anyway, so they made me walk. It was two and a half miles in the pouring rain. <laughs> so then I walked to the to Manchester and got one hour on the track to kind of get used to this new bike and to the track that, that the champs would be on. And uh, it went quite well, actually. I was third in the individual pursuit. I was a thousandth of a second behind a guy called Edmund Bradbury, who went on to race five some great results he was second in the British time trial championships he raced at UCI level and yeah was a top rider um, I can't remember how I did and everything else the kilo maybe 10th and the, the bunch races I was pretty terrible <laughs> in all honesty they didn't quite suit me but um, I haven't raced many of them since then so that was kind of where I dipped my toe in and then uh, I revisited it just a year or so later and, and had a go at, at nationals properly uh, same bike, same sort of equipment, just a bit more preparation towards it. And that went well. I think it was sixth or seventh in the IP. And that was what really planted the seed in my head to say, I'm going to go back and do this properly uh, a year or so later. So I, I spent a lot more time developing, applying the engineering side to the problem to get more aerodynamic, to optimize my drivetrain, my tires, my pacing, and just to yeah, hopefully go a bit faster. And obviously it proved pretty productive. I, I then went and won the individual pursuit, the kilo and the team pursuit. So it was a good good year of, of applying engineering to a good problem. Uh, and then since then, it's obviously grown massively and we've raced at World Cups and World Championships and I'm working with the, the Danish Federation towards the Olympics. So it's it's been quite a uh, successful yeah, few years. So obviously you've mentioned that you did a lot of team and individual pursuits. Did you sort of choose that discipline or did that discipline sort of choose you? Interesting. I think hmm, they've, that's a good question. By, I guess by deduction, I would probably go for those disciplines because of how scientific they are. But then equally, they probably were attracted to me in that sense as well, that they, you can, you can distill it down. So so simply and it there's something really kind of enjoyable about that that because there's nothing else that matters there's not like in a road race you could crash or puncture or end up in the wrong position or take a corner badly it's there's none of that it's just you the laws of physics and the clock and anything you can do between or with that laws of physics you can twiddle and tweak and 
um, optimize and should result in a better time at the end of it. And I guess that really resonated with me and I found it incredibly enjoyable to dig in deeper and deeper and deeper. And I still do. I still learn so much about the pursuit, both individual and team, as I'm allowed to spend more time and more resource and have more budget to, to try and understand and try and measure more stuff. And <laughs> it sounds so nerdy, but for me, it is really, really enjoyable. Uh, and I guess I'm lucky in that sense that I found something that I've studied and can apply to something that is so enjoyable and I can be so passionate about. Um, and then also at the same time, I've managed to, to use my own success and my own sporting endeavours. So um, I'm definitely lucky on that front. Uh, but yeah, maybe the event did choose me in that sense. <laughs> Were you part of the Olympic Development Programme? Never. Uh, I've not been involved uh, other than a two-month trial with the podium squad. So when we had that breakthrough national championships, that was January 2017, we actually didn't hear anything from Great Britain throughout all of, all of the summer. We sent a few emails, didn't hear much back. So we then we'd set up as a UCI trade team. We went to a few World Cups and had some really good success. We just missed out on a medal at our second World Cup in Manchester, which was frustrating, but equally we'd come so far in such a short time. It was such an experience that so off the back of those events they then said okay you and Charlie can come along we'll do some trials and Charlie had been on the ODP the Olympic Development Programme before as a, as a youth he'd won everything I think to be honest but I think they'd struggled with Charlie and to, with Harry as well they're interesting people to be with I think in a, in a positive way they, they can be absolutely fantastic but they're, they're hard to manage and I think GB wanted people who were easy to manage who fit the system. So Charlie knew how to, to behave to try and achieve that, whereas I was a bit more open-minded. I just wanted to go fast and I didn't quite probably fit their cookie-cutter mould of, of what an athlete should be. They wanted somebody who, who would come in and would quite happily uh, just do what they say, train as they say, ride the positions, mm -hmm. equipment and tactics as they say. And that's not really me. I, I love that nerdy side. I want I want to be able to control it and, and to manage it and to understand it as well. So after a few months there, it was uh, there were a few sort of heated moments between myself and, and coaches and managers, and it didn't really work out, which actually, if anything, has resulted in a much better career path for me. I've thoroughly enjoyed then having the opportunity to develop my own track cycling team to bring my own ideas to the fore and not have the limitations of other people placing whatever red tape around me I can just crack on and enjoy it and it's opened so many doors now obviously the, the Danish Federation's a big thing for me that I can help um, some guys who are already physiologically pretty awesome to then hopefully achieve something outrageous when the Olympics roll around or at least that's the target so it's I think it's, it's better for it but at the time it was very hard to reconcile that mm. the, the national yeah. team is not where I wanted to be but it's it's grown into something cool, so I'm happy. Yeah, I think it definitely shows that that isn't like the only way to become a professional rider. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of people out there who've taken different paths, and mm. I would say that to anybody. Don't be disheartened if the National Federation aren't interested or you don't fit because there are many different paths to the top um, and just keep working at it. Can you tell me more about your role with the Danish Federation? Sure. So it all started back, probably rewind 
quite a while. The, the Danish have been a really interesting group of guys the whole time we've been on UCI track World Cup scene. It's obviously when, when you go to World Cups, there's all these different nations. There's there's obviously Great Britain there, but there's the Australians, the New, Ze- New Zealand, Canadians, Americans. Um, and the Danish were just a, a nation we got on really well with. We just talked a lot, had a lot of banter, um, poked a bit of fun at them for basically being physiologically great we're not going all that fast and I think they appreciated that but they then they'd come like spying on our equipment late at night so you'd leave the velodrome after your session you'd come back just I don't know let's say you forgot your bag or something and uh would be like the Danes just like peeking around at your bikes like, oh what are you doing but anyway we, we always got on well and they were super helpful because we were learning things on the fly we had riders forgetting stuff as well so we always had to go and borrow something or ask for a tool or whatever it might be and they they were just super happy to, to help us on that. And then um, back in 2019, in June, the UCI changed their rules that said going forward uh, that trade teams wouldn't be eligible for nation World's, World Cups. They would become Nations Cups. So the trade teams were not allowed, effectively demoting us to a lower level, which I've since fought, or we all, we all fought and things changed, but at the time I wasn't expecting them to. So I went searching elsewhere for a way to keep involved with team pursuing at this level and uh, I just said to Denmark look I can see you've got the potential to to win in Tokyo like you can go very fast it just seems like you're lacking a little bit on the technical side and I'm keen to help I can't race at World Cups anymore I'm probably going to have a lot more time on my hands is that of interest and yeah it it was so we had a few meetings agreed to take on a, a sort of research and development a technical role so helping basically anything that is a side of coaching, I guess, anything aside of physiology. So everything from tires and chains and chain rings and positions and helmets and skin suits and um, strategy and analysis and uh, aero testing and all, all the cool nerdy things that I've done for the past few years. It was an opportunity to apply that to some truly world-class athletes. And yeah, I've kind of grabbed it with two hands and, and run. And the last 18 months, I think, have been really successful. They've obviously gone on and, and broke the world record three times and become world champions, which was some experience. And that was 12 months ago. And I think they're in a, an even better situation now. So I'm uh, I'm really happy to just be part of the team. It's it's quite an enjoyable environment as well. It's not a very big team, which means it's, it's very easy to get on with everybody and everybody has different ideas. So we can bounce stuff around and come up with solutions very quickly rather than having hierarchies and red tapes and just bureaucracy and politics. It's, it's just super simple. Just we want to do something, we're going to do it. And I love that. So I know you have your own business and I'll talk about that with you later. But can you tell me a bit about how you managed your training and racing around your education at university? So I think at university, it wasn't too bad. I pretty much always prioritise the education side, I was paying a lot of money to be there. I did appreciate that. I once sat down and calculated my hourly rate at university, how much I'm paying my lecturers and, and everybody else. And um, I realized it was a scarily high amount. So I definitely focused on, on my education because as well, I knew it wasn't forever. I knew that I could ride my bike in two, three, four years time, whenever it was, I'd graduate. And in the meantime, it was the right thing to focus on my education. So I had something to fall back on and obviously proved quite hopefully anyways proving the right decision to not um, just try and be a cyclist that I can be a cyclist and be an engineer at the same time since then it's become harder out in the real world once you're out of education then suddenly 
the onus is on you to make sure that you have enough money to pay rent or your mortgage or fuel in your car or food on the table. It's, it, it was hard actually after university because I stepped back from employment and had set my own business up that when a business is so young and so new, you need to spend a lot of time and effort on it, but it's not actually making all that much money. And obviously as a cyclist, you'll appreciate there's always new stuff to buy and new expensive bits of equipment and traveling to races. It's not cheap. You've got your race entry, you've got fuel, sometimes accommodation. It, bec- it becomes um, pretty costly. So I, I, I struggled through that um, both on the financial side and the mental side um, and my training suffered as well. But I, when I started to perform well, my business started to perform better and that allowed me more time to train. It kind of was um, self-fulfilling and enabled me to be a better athlete. Since it's kind of grown to now to the point where other people are employed with with my brother and my dad and my mum to a certain extent and, and one of my friends, Mike, it's now become a bit more stressful again because there's more management involved. Originally, it was just a bit of engineering design work and getting stuff produced, whereas now there's design and production and stock management um, and loads of other bits that go on with running a business that um, I wasn't, I'd say, particularly taught when I was at uni. So you're learning on the fly and it's it's been a hard thing to manage. I, I can be honest about that. It's not easy. And there are times when you feel that everything's building up around you and your email inbox is, is breeding. There's hundreds of emails in there and you think, God, how am I ever going to respond to them and, and train and work and rest and recover because it's so critical to performance to do that. So I probably sit on the knife edge and sometimes slide too too much to the wrong wrong side and it's just being aware of when that's happening and trying to catch it early because I've had times when yeah weeks where I just plow on through and try to deal with it and you end up in a bad place where you're you're not sleeping you're not working you're not training well and everything just kind of snowballs and it's not good so um being self-aware of that is is pretty important I think to to getting good quality and good results and keeping that business afloat yeah, definitely. Can you tell me how you train for different disciplines, like how you train differently for the track compared to your training for road and TT? Big one is mostly intensity, intensity and volume. And it's uh, sort of a spectrum of that, of how much do you ride your bike versus how hard do you ride your bike. So on the track, it's obviously pretty short. It's pretty intense. Uh, there's a lot of big powers being put out, big peak torques. So there's a lot of gym work, a lot of track work, a lot of uh, stuff on the on the watt bike, doing a lot of intensity. Uh, whereas now I'm on the road and less worried about the track, so more focus on time trials and road races. There's a lot more volume, a lot more zone two mileage, uh, less of less of the hard intervals. Which I don't know. And sometimes, some, yeah, I do miss them a little bit, but they're so hard at the time that you you think I'm, I'm kind of glad they're gone but they were much easier to fit in because you could get a really good session out in an hour and that would tick the box of the day. Whereas now when you're having to do three, four, five, six hour rides, sometimes it's, it's hard to squeeze all that in. Um, I actually ended up back on the track just this last week. I've been riding in the B team for the Danish team pursuit. So um, I was back doing the old team pursuit efforts just a few days ago and forgot how hard they were. <laughs> um, it was quite enjoyable. It's always good to go back and mix it up as well. Just have a bit more variety to your training to keep things fresh and to keep yourself motivated. Um, I often as well move between training indoors on, on Zwift and then training outdoors. I have periods where I enjoy just the focus and the discipline of indoor training. 
And then sometimes it's nice to just get out, enjoy some fresh air, explore and just switch off from staring at a computer screen. Yeah, I use the walk bike as well sometimes because it's just so much easier to fit in with my schoolwork and everything. But I still like to go outside for a ride at the weekends. But I do think it is good to have something that um, you can do it on your own behalf because obviously I ride with my with my dad and obviously it's hard for him sometimes so it is a really good thing to use but I, I agree with what you said about mixing it up as well. Yeah variety is the spice of life but I think the what bike's a fabulous tool and having power numbers right in front of you and everything else that goes with it those metrics are, are so useful so yeah always mix it up I think um, before things get too stale and you get a bit bored of just riding the walk bike or just riding outside. In 2018, you raced the track world championships in the Netherlands. Talk me through your build up to that and how you prepared and the event itself. Uh, so I wish I could have like a really cool story about how the build up was great and the worlds was great and uh, the event was amazing. But unfortunately, actually, it was a really bad time for me as, as an athlete. I had struggled under the GB system, so I'd been there for a few months and mentally I hadn't enjoyed it I, I struggled with the travel um, the lack of control around my life the fact that sessions were set without discussion that I didn't have um, the ability or I wasn't empowered to make my own decisions around what sessions I should do and when and how and it made it really hard for me to be honest I didn't have a good amount of control that enabled me to do what I know I needed to do to sit on that start line very well prepared so I I think by extension that that put me on a slippery slope for my my mental health or my um, morale or mental state whatever you want to call it and I went to the event not all that confident of riding too well I didn't feel I was in a good place and I struggled really through the whole thing um, didn't enjoy it didn't do a good ride uh, didn't think I did myself justice um, from a power perspective it was pretty bang average and yeah just it's not a good event and I'm, looking back it's, it's somewhat frustrating but then equally I don't know what I could have done different without trying to cut myself loose from that system that you're also trying to get yourself into so it was mm. being painted into a corner of just having to accept that I had to do what I was told and see what comes out the other end and it didn't work and I was vocal around that afterwards I said look I don't think these things are right I don't think this is what's going to elicit the best performance for these reasons and basically told you either do it that way or you're not in the team kind of thing um so yeah it was a pretty low point for me and that going on into the commonwealth games it kind of continued in the same mindset i knew i wasn't going to be in the team pursuit i'd been told that or at least effectively been told that because they wouldn't tell me what i needed to do to be in getting the team so that was yeah it was quite a hard time for me and because of not being in the team and, and all my struggles there i think i came back better i understood how I wanted to do things I understood how I wanted to run the team and what I wanted to achieve for my own personal reasons rather than trying to join the Great British team I was happy to go down the sort of team KGF who what bike route and do things our way and see what came from it really and I think it, it was quite a successful few years and we had some great great times on the track and even better times on the road I think as well. It sounds like you had like a really hard time yeah <laughs> I can look back and smile but at the time yeah I was 
yeah, I'm not kidding. I would sit in my hotel room and cry and be like, this is just stupid. Why am I here? Like, there's no point. I'm wasting people's time, money and effort because I can't prepare as I know I need to. I can't do the training I want to do. I can't ride the equipment or clothing or whatever that I know I need to perform as an athlete. And even down to like, um, I had my own power meter and they took that from me and put their power meter on, which then proved to be broken and they wouldn't replace it for weeks and weeks and weeks. So I was having numbers that were all over the place. And when you're so reliant on that number and what that means to you as an athlete, it became very hard to kind of understand where I was in my preparation. Yeah. So yeah, it wasn't, wasn't too fun. Um, I mean, some people go there and have a fabulous time and they fit in and it's great to have that structure around them where they can just let go don't have to worry about that and that's as a person then for some people that can be great whereas for me it's it's the opposite of what I want and, and what I needed so to then step outside and and take that control back was quite liberating and enabled me to move forward as a better athlete. The following year you won bronze in the mixed team time trial in the road world champs in Yorkshire that must have been a great day for you all I remember from that week was it was really bad weather. <laughs> How was it for you? Oh, the rain. <laughs> it was so frustrating. Well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it suited us for it to, to be wet. We'd ridden the course countless times as a team, uh, as individuals. I'd ridden it back in May. Uh, and then once we got the nod that it was likely we, it would be on, I travelled up there. must have been four or five times uh, just to understand every little bit of that course and uh when it rains then suddenly that knowledge is worth a huge amount more how fast can you go through a corner where's the the dry line where's the wet line what's the grippy bit of the course and all that kind of stuff is worth it and we only won that medal by i think about three seconds so that's not much uh you can make and make that up in a, a corner or two uh but it was just everything I wanted in an event running actually, because I had my own control or we had our own control as, as a team. Okay. There's the men's and the women's and I didn't have any control per se around the women or their selection, but I could influence them and say, look, this is what we're doing. This is how we're going about it. This is why this is all our modeling, make of it what you will and, and give them some ideas. And they helped us as well. So it was quite a nice way of going about it. And within the men's team, I obviously knew Harry and John lived together <laughs> for the, the year preceding. We team pursued together all the time. So it was super easy to just slide in and we could be just be straight, be honest. Uh, I could go on, well, I, I went on an altitude training camp with John and the rest of the Who What Bike guys just before that. So I was, I knew I was in a good place physiologically. I was mentally in a good place. We'd done the preparation we needed and went there and executed a, a, a great race. I think I, I, look back and can't think of a single place that I could have found any more time on that course on that day I got everything out so I was content and happy and it got us the result that it kind of felt like we won I know it was third but to us that was a, that was a win. So you're now riding for Rebel World Tights and you're super busy but that's not all you're doing you also run what shop like you said what is it and what do you do? So what shop was set up as a, effectively an outlet to sell all the cool things that I developed for myself as an athlete. I, from things like, it started off literally just waxing chains, which has become quite a, a popular and, and common thing. But then went on, I was developing like my own carbon fiber armrests and then my carbon fiber extensions. And since then crank sets and other little things like Garmin mounts and just cool stuff like that. It was an outlet. It meant that what I had other people would want, so then I could 
um, make a living off that. Uh, and it, it's just grown. I also do consultancy. So that's where things like uh, the work with Canyon Tram and Jumbo Visma and, and obviously the Danish Federation have come from. So Watchshop then consults with these teams or federations to, to help them to go faster. Uh, and then also with the general public, so things like error testing, it was something that I did a lot of back at university, studying and understanding the modeling and the physics around cycling. It was probably my most interesting module. Um, we, we had a, it was, it was a competition, we called it a spud gun challenge, but it was basically a compressed air gun that fired a tennis ball a certain distance. And you had to model the tennis ball. And uh, so you had to say like the angle and the pressure you needed to hit a certain target and you had to compete against the, the lecturer. And I was the only person to beat the lecturer in that, that year. At his own game so it's kind of a, a cool little thing but i kind of ran with it. it's the same laws of physics around cycling uh, as firing a tennis ball out of a gun as weird as that sounds um, but it, it meant that i could then look at the aerodynamics of, of a cyclist and, and what's going on and that was then i guess a, a penny drop moment that you could improve it by measuring it you could then go well what happens if you change your helmet or your skin suit or your position or your wheels or your tires and um, yeah, it's proved really popular <laughs> and to the point now that it's grown. So my brother is full-time. He does all the stuff behind the scenes. He deals with all of our suppliers and our, our web shop and, um, all the emails as well. So he's, he's awesome. <laughs> he's really good at that. Uh, my dad runs all the, the dispatch stuff. So all the, the stock keeping and, and postage, uh, and mum runs all the accounts. And then I've got a friend, Mike, who, who works for us part-time. He does a lot of the design work so I can come up with the cool ideas and then say, and now let's actually make this. And he, he goes through and, and gets that to an end product. So we're in a cool spot. It's it's growing really quickly. And it's just trying to make sure that I can keep involved as much as I can with all my other plates that I'm spinning, that Watchshop still stays on top of its game. That sounds really cool. So if you could pick one like piece of equipment to make me more aero, which one would you pick? I often get this kind of question. What's the best thing to buy and why? Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's an easy answer and a hard answer. I go with it depends. I think the best thing for most tends to be a combination of a good skin suit, so well-fitting with the right fabrics, um, a good helmet that also is well-fitting that enables you to have good forward vision but stay in a good tuck position, and then the third one I tend to say is just working on your position and not, you don't have to be in a wind tunnel or testing or just, just constantly looking. So things like a, a mirror, front on mirror and a side on mirror or a camera or your phone can be really helpful for just playing about, okay, with like your stack height or your hand height or your saddle position and going, okay, let's change this and change that. And then let's try and pull your head in and you can get really far just by tweaking, really tweaking and looking. And I think there's a lot to be said for that because you can spend a lot of money on aerodynamic equipment. I, I wholeheartedly appreciate that. It can be an expensive sport, but it's equally you can go a long way off just a little bit of ingenuity and spending some time just trying to get a bit more tight, a bit more tucked um, and a bit more in like a, a nice clean position. And there's a lot of good photos out there of the top riders, both male and female. And I think it's a good starting point, especially for younger athletes to just see what they're doing and just move in that direction. Don't, don't worry. You've got years and years and years. You're going to grow and become more flexible and you will have longer gangly arms and who knows what, when you grow up, everyone changes, right? And you just want to constantly optimize. And maybe when you're 20, 25 and like, right, this is, this is my year. That's when you can really sort of dig in and start focusing on, 
on the high performance stuff. But in the meantime, just just enjoy it really. And if you enjoy tweaking and, and changing stuff around, then it's just another part of the, the fun bit of cycling. As you said, it can be really expensive to get into riding. Do you think that you could do time trials on a budget? Yeah, definitely. And even better now with CTT doing road bike time trials. I think it's awesome. Uh, I love the classic series. I love loads of the, the um, closed circuit races and yeah, getting road bikes involved is, is an absolute no brainer. It's obviously a whole lot cheaper than time trial bike and a disc wheel and all the other stuff that goes in with, with having to optimize for proper TT. So I think road bike time trials are an absolute no brainer and they're good fun as well. It's something totally different. It's another challenge. It, it sort of resets the running, the order of dominance and, my teammate Tipper, he's well, my coach as well. He's um, having a good go now at a lot of the classic series on road bikes. So uh, I think that's a good way of going about it. But if not as well, just if you're buying a time trial bike, a lot of the older equipment is actually really, really good. So something like the Cervelo P3 that was designed in like I don't know, 2008, maybe 2009 is still one of the fastest bikes out there. And you can pick them up for a few hundred pounds, which is scary that some of the best equipment is 10 years, 15 years old. But um, that's just just uh, the way that physics is. If someone designed a bike really well, then the laws of physics don't change and uh, can still be a really quick bike. So you've got a book coming out this month called Start at the End, How Reverse Engineering Can Lead to Success. Why did you decide that now was the right time to write a book with everything else that you have going on? Um. I think if you push things back, like now is never the perfect time to do anything. Um, there's always a good reason to delay things, but it's never the, a good reason. It's, it's just, you think, well, maybe you do have the time, maybe you don't. Um, there was a, a saying that, that one of my good friends uh, back when I used to play rugby said that um, uh, if, you, if you bite off more than you chew, sometimes you're just going to have to chew it. And I think I maybe was a bit like that with, the book not in a bad way it was uh in lockdown and we had time but then out after that there's still more after you've written the book that you don't realize um that all obviously all the promotional side and, and stuff that goes on with um with the publisher that they they obviously want you to be involved with and i was like oh i didn't really think about that when i wrote a book that <laughs> suddenly you've got interviews and, and other things going on and, I was like, oh. <laughs> and now i'm busy again with after lockdown or lockdowns obviously easing of bit busier with travel and racing and whatever else but um yeah so it's been enjoyable though I think lockdown was the perfect time to put pen to paper in that sense and it wasn't my intentional thought it wasn't that I went out to to do it originally it was um, a guy called James Spackman who runs uh, BKS agency because he's a really keen cyclist and followed all the who what bike stuff and he approached us and the team and said, look, if, if you're interested in telling your story, just get in contact and we'll see if we can get a, a good publisher on board. So I, I kept discussing it with him and we came up with a good idea. And then when lockdown was coming around, he was like, yep, let's go for it. Now's the time and um, totally agreed. So we spent all of last last summer, really, um, putting pen to paper or in my case, speaking over the phone to, to Paul Maunder, who was my ghostwriter, who's also a keen cyclist who basically took my words and, and interviewed me and, and put, it, put it into black and white, which was super helpful because I I often say a lot of things, but can't really always verbalize that in a, in a clear way. 
uh, my teammates would always tell you, tell me, tell anybody that that I, I struggle to be clear and I, I love to waffle on about everything. So Paul was an absolute godsend for getting distilled down in, into a meaningful, meaningful book. Uh, but it, it was it's quite nice to just reflect back on everything we've done for a few years and to take stock because lockdown was a weird time for everybody and it was a good opportunity I think to go okay it's been a while few years we've got a breather let's relax think what we've done and then how do I move forward from this both as an athlete and also as an engineer so for me it was quite cathartic and quite helpful but hopefully as well at the same time it proves the same for other people who can now understand my story but also my approach to performance and then apply that to themselves so that's yeah that's why we went down that route we didn't just want to to give everybody the life and times of kgf and who what bike because we, we have a documentary we have social media people see that day in day out it wanted to be a bit more on the engineering side to try and give people an understanding of how we approach problems and and what we had access to and how we dealt with those throughout throughout the whole um three years of, of being a track cycling team so uh hopefully yeah it's it's going to bring some benefit to others out there um but yeah it's literally coming out in a couple of weeks and things are getting busy i'm doing yeah, interviews and pieces with some of the big papers and even like sky news which is it's quite scary i never thought it'd be that big in my head it was just going to be a book and the book goes out and that's great whereas yeah the, you really get stuck in with all this this publicity stuff um scary in a way Oh, that sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it's bigger than I thought, um, which is cool as well at the same time. Going back to the whole biting off more than you can chew, but um, it's it's been quite fun to, to really yeah, get my teeth stuck in and, and chew through it all and to do all this stuff. Because I've not done it to that extent before. I've obviously been interviewed by like Cycling Weekly and a few papers here and there, but look, this is like another level. Um, <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> I look forward to reading it. Yeah, I hope it's helpful for you as well. I'll, I'll make sure to get your signed copy. Thank you. That's okay. So as if you haven't got enough going on, you're having an attempt at the British Arrow record. Are there any details you can tell me at the moment or is it still all being planned? Uh, so, well, the original plan was to be doing it next week. Well, not the original plan. <laughs> like Version four of the plan was to do it this week's so the original original plan was um about a year ago to be doing it up in, in Cochabamba in Bolivia but um we got caught in lockdown in Tenerife we were uh, on our final altitude camp up Mount Tidy the volcano in Tenerife when uh, yeah it all went all went downhill um and throughout the lockdown I spent a lot of time over here in, in Denmark uh training uh, on the track so doing a lot of longer efforts it was something I always wanted to have a go at and I thought well if we can't race as team pursuers now then I'm going to give it a good go and, and see what I can achieve I, I did a practice run last February in Derby and it was pretty successful so sort of 52 and a half kilometers and I thought if I really give this a good go I can probably get close so uh, then the next plan was let's let's try it at sea level let's go for the British record which is Bradley Wiggins uh, 54 point five to six kilometers if I remember correctly uh so we, we were eyeing all that up the uh, sort of december time and then more lockdowns and we couldn't get out of the country and then we pushed back and said okay well maybe late jan early feb and then lockdown was still going on couldn't get track time couldn't get timing and commissaires and all the other stuff organized so 
then we said, okay, well, how about we really push it back into into April when things really should be sorted and should be okay. Um, it was getting by that point quite frustrating, all these pushbacks, because I had good form at each point. And, but then equally, I'd learned a lot each time I went through and did a practice run, whether it was 30 minutes, 45 minutes or the full hour, there was a lot of information, a lot of experience coming out of it of how to improve. So, um, yeah. Uh, but then just two weeks ago, uh, one of my injuries I've had for about five, six years now reared its ugly head. So I, I got knocked off by a car in 2015 and um, I have two bulging discs in my back that have just, I've had to manage basically for my cycling career. And it's fine most of the time. I, no one would know any different. I can walk around and be normal and that's all fine. And then sometimes I could have just a really weird, it could be anything like picking up something at a weird angle and then my back goes and then can't stand up for a week um which is pretty frustrating so yeah two weeks ago i had that and was in bed horizontal for four or five days and then managed to get a bit more movement back and now i'm two weeks later and i'm, I'm back to normal but obviously i've lost a week of training and everything else so i don't think i don't think next week would be the right time for it so um the plan is to just try and find something that's a bit more achievable time-wise that we know that lockdowns and things really won't be a problem uh joss is obviously aiming for one and that's going to be later on in the year. So I'm pretty confident I'll, I'll align it with hers and we'll go for it together. Um, as much as I'd love to do it now, but if, if I'm not ready, I'm not ready. It, it's not something I can do on a whim. I need to be in the form of my life to break it. Obviously, your partner, Joss, rides for Dropsicle. How have you found it being away from home so much? Um, yeah, it can be hard at times. We both travel for different reasons for different races especially the last few months she's been in Belgium quite a bit and then obviously I've been over here but I think largely we got to spend a lot of time together um, we spent the last year of lockdown together so um, it's been all right uh, but yeah it, it, you have big blocks where you might not see each other for three four weeks which is obviously a bit tough at times and um, yeah it's good when you get back and you can go out and go on a load of adventures and, and ride together um, but we kind of accept it it's not forever it's not going to be something we're going to do for the rest of our lives. It's maybe another few years or so maximum. Um, so, yeah, nothing too too stressful in the long term. Um, it's just for right now, if we know we want to be good athletes, then we're going to have to go in and travel and go to all these big races. And that's just part and parcel of, of being a cyclist. Um, but then, yeah, we can, we can settle down in a few years, a good house, 10 kids, build a cycling team. Be good. <laughs> What other hopes do you have for 2021? Um, I guess the big one is just to race. Um, as mad as that sounds, and I know uh, I already am back racing, but I just want to take on some of the big big UCI races, stage races, time trials, um, and just do that because I haven't really. Uh, I started cycling or racing competitively in sort of 2015 in road races properly, and I've never done big UCI races, big time trials, that kind of thing. I've always focused towards the track. So now that the track is, is not taking up all my time, I hopefully can can give it a good, honest attempt at trying to, to do well in some of the big UCI races against all the big pro teams and pro county teams. Uh, that's, that's my plan. I, I want to go well at the national championships in the time trial and in the road race. So, yeah, that, that's hopefully what 2021 will bring for me, at least. Um, in my head <laughs> so I've seen that they're bringing back Chris Boardman's Lotus bike what do you think of the new model I think it's cool I think it's really cool it's kind of 
from an engineer's perspective, just really well designed, just a nice bike with a different approach to aerodynamics. And yeah, I think it's going to be fast. Uh, they, they've put a lot of effort into it and a lot of good thought. The, obviously, I'm very interested to see how it goes in Tokyo uh, aboard with the, with the GB guys and whether other teams actually have it. It has to be publicly available now, and I think a few nations have ordered them, so there might be a few other nations riding the, the Lotus Hope bike. Uh, but it's just, it's cool, isn't it? It's different. There's a lot of time for that. I know there's some pretty cool bikes out there. What's your dream retro TT bike? I think you just said it with the the Lotus. Is it the Type 108? I can't remember the exact designation, but the well, it was more of a trap bike, wasn't it, than a, than a TT bike? The one that Borman rode to his uh, Barcelona Olympics uh, pursuit record or pursuit check gold medal. I think that was pretty outrageous and pretty awesome. And I think it, it just is the pinnacle of of cool bikes. Um, but the TT bikes, retro ones. A lot of the Lotus bikes in general, I think, are just really cool. It's it's that synonymous of kind of like bringing Formula One motorsport technology to the world of cycling and being ahead of the curve. It's so cool to see. They're just so hard to get hold of nowadays. They're, they're rare and expensive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, one of them would be cool. If not, what else? What else would I go for? Retro TT bike. I think some of the like the the wild ones, there was an era just before the Lugano Charter, which I think was 1997. There was an era where they had these crazy carbon monocoque bikes that were all trying to replicate what what Hope and Lotus did. So what Lotus did. And uh, yeah, just one of them, I think, would be a cool thing to hang off the wall. Um, <laughs> they're just really funky, a bit wild, a bit out there. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. What's your favourite race you've ever done? Favourite race? Hmm. there's lots of favorite races for different reasons so hmm, that's a good good question my favorite road race is probably beaumont trophy i haven't raced abroad a huge amount in the uci scene to to kind of pull apart other races and, and say why but beaumont i always seem to go well at i enjoy the course so have good memories there and i think that's always a big factor in performance um time trial wise um it's another good one. I've, I've raced a lot of different time trials. There was probably one of my favourite ones. I think the course is called, it's really, it's the CTT of like L1015X2, I think it is, <laughs> which is a, I think it's 45 kilometres, maybe a little bit longer. It's up in the Lake District, two laps, really hilly, really technical. Uh, and the day I raced it was wet and windy. And it was everything that I love in a time trial because it challenged so much. It was pacing, it was the, the bike handling, the technique, the aero, everything in, in one go, which is like my kind of dream course that isn't flat, isn't out and back, isn't boring. It, it's kind of throwing all the elements in, throwing the technical stuff in, a bit of descending, a bit of climbing, a bit of outright speed, just all of it in one go. And I think that is the epitome of a good time trial course for me. Uh, and then tra- best track races. My favourite is um, the Swiss Track Cycling Challenge, which we've done a few years now. It's in Grenchen in Switzerland and uh, just a really fun race. It happens about four or five days before Christmas. So everyone's in like this really jolly mood and everyone's like enjoying life and it's snowing and yeah, it's just a good fun race. There's nothing particularly uh, different about it, I guess. Just just fun, enjoyable. And I guess that's what cycling should be. Ah, sounds cool. (laughs) Where's your favourite place to ride for fun? Probably Snowdonia in North Wales. 
I had a good few trips with the the university cycling club there. I, I live not too far away, just a couple hours away. And Joss and I have ridden out there a few times where we, we bike packed. So we'd ride out for five or six hours through the, the Snowdonia mountain range, stay in the hotel, turn around, ride back the next day. Um, which is good fun, whatever you could fit on your bikes. You've got like a pair of flip-flops, shorts and t-shirt maybe, but um, it's always good fun. I just like it there. It's it's good memories from childhood. I used to go there as a kid. Good roads, really scenic, quite remote in a way, but not so far that it takes hours to get there. Just, yeah, it's a good, good nice location, enjoyable. Who's your favourite current rider? Oh, favourite current rider. There's different riders I like for different reasons. So like uh, Matteo Trentin, I like because he he's like a good leader. He's head of the, the like the riders union. Um, uh, I like the kind of leadership that he brings and the honesty to it all. Um, so that's pretty cool. There are, I guess, a lot of more niche riders that most people maybe don't know that I think are just really cool for for what they do. So people like uh, Frederick Roddenberg, he rides for you know X, but he's an outrageous team pursuit and got great potential as a sprinter in the future when he focuses on the road um just a cool guy full stop um there's i guess a lot of riders like that um i guess i see the potential that they have um and just down to earth genuine people and just i like that about cycling that when they get off the bike they're just everyone's just a normal person and when you get to know them and then you see them out there in a race and they do something crazy like like yeah break a world record three times in in a day um so yeah, riders like that are, are pretty cool to me. Who's your favourite rider of all time? Time, oh, that's a really good question. Uh, people probably call me a bit, probably a bit easy to say Chris Boardman because of what he's done. But I guess I'd bounce that up as well at the same time and say Graham Abri. And I've met them both and, and chatted to them uh, quite a bit. And they're both really interesting for different reasons. And if anything, I... I would say Abri was more aligned with my kind of approach and my thoughts in that he was just ignoring the status quo, ignoring the way things had been done and would just approach it with his own ideas and his own thoughts and was quite happy to pull apart everything, including his dishwasher or whatever it was, his washing machine, um, to, to find performance. And uh, yeah, I just enjoyed talking to him and, and seeing that he is all over the place sometimes with his thoughts, but um, that's because he's just brimming with ideas. And yeah, I just genuinely like the guy for that. I think he was the epitome of like a British time trialist just trying to go faster. And um, yeah, I really liked it. I liked the approach to the sport. Yeah. What's your advice for young riders? Find what you like, what you enjoy about the sport and chase that. Because if it's fun, then you're going to keep doing it and going back to it. And I think there's so many different aspects to sport. There's obviously tons of different disciplines. And then even if you just went down being a road rider, or you were a climber, do you like the technical stuff? Do you like breakaways? Are you a sprinter? Um, I think just seek out the enjoyment in the sport and just do it for the fun of it. And everything else will come after it. If you want to be successful or you just want to be competitive or you just like exploring or whatever it is just chase the fun in the sport because that's what keeps you going especially in a longer career or just a longer um, time within the sport if you're enjoying every time you're on your bike every pedal stroke then you're going to be in there for for the long run um, as soon as it gets 
gets stale, gets boring, then move on to, to something different. Just, yeah, make sure it's always fun. Yeah. You've got five minutes before you head down to the start of a race. What's on your playlist to get you motivated? What's on my playlist? So this is it's an interesting question, actually. I used to. I haven't done it so much anymore, but I used to um, make playlists before every big race, different ones, whatever I thought at the time I'd, I'd want to listen to for warm-up especially for a track race where you've got 30, 40 minutes sometimes before a race where you can have your headphones on and just focus. Um, but it's, it's often a big mix from, could be like some dance electronic remixes to like some old school rock, um, even like Queen or ABBA sometimes. Like, honestly, mix it up. I, I'm not a picky, picky listener by any stretch of the imagination. I often go for more i guess indie rock nowadays so what's that like catfish in the bottom and kind of stuff but variety absolute variety um i'm not not a picky listener just something different something that's got a good beat to it something that lets me zone out most of the time it's just i don't want to be talked to or asked (laughs) questions of uh we actually had a rule that an hour out of competition at world cups i wasn't allowed to be asked questions of because it was just something that frustrated me um that most of the time it was really a mundane or innocuous question. Like, I don't know, what tire pressure do you want? And it's like the same tire pressure we've run every time. <laughs> don't ask that question. I just, I wanted to zone out and having the headphones on and just having music meant that I was, I was immune to that. I was away from the world and could focus on my own performance. How do you focus when you're in the middle of the velodrome and you're trying to focus when there's lots of racing going on? So for me, focus comes from basically imagining how the race is going to go, how everything's going to pan out. I'm very visual in that sense. Just day to day, I am as a person. I don't like have an internal monologue talking to myself. I'm mostly just thinking about shapes and designs and plans and stuff in that sense. So for me, focus comes from zoning out from the things around me by focusing more in on how I'm going to execute the next four minutes or hopefully less than four minutes if it all goes well. Uh, so how the, how I'm going to be in the start gate, the countdown, how the, the start itself is going to look, the motions I'm going to go through. So like, for example, you're up on two, you're back on one, that kind of thing. Um, the line I'm going to ride, head position, what my strategy is for, for turns, just going through all that. So it becomes second nature. And I think visualization is it's a really powerful tool in that sense that you can be very aware of hopefully what is going to happen. Um, a lot of, um, how do you describe it? Like a physiological um, markers that your, your body, your brain is listening to are actually just you comparing how you are feeling to how you think you should be feeling. So if you, for example, you get into the last kilo, you're probably going to be pretty much screaming internally. But as long as you know in your head, this, this is how it should feel that you can keep carrying on because you know for the next minute it's, it's going to be painful, whatever it is, but you accept that and you go, this is normal, this is fine. Uh, and I know that's a weird kind of way of thinking about it, but um, so much of it is down to just perception and comparing to to what is normal or what is expected. So expecting that it's it's going to be painful, it's going to be suffer, it's got a lot of suffering, it's going to be a bit grim, but um, yeah, having that in your head and being prepared for it and accepting that that is worth it and that you can push through it. Thank you for joining me today, Dan. Hey, thank you, Georgia, for uh, for having me. Uh, really interesting questions. It's fun to talk about some sort of different stuff, uh, a different approach to, to my history and what I've been up to. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
Thank you everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I feel like I've learnt so much from Dan and I really hope that he does well in his hour record attempt later on this year. Remember that you can find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music and all the usual podcast places. See you on the bike.